Hello and welcome to another brand new episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. My name is Paul Hindle, editor of Fintech Futures, and for this episode, we're joined by Marion King, chair and trustee of the Open Banking Implementation Entity and non-executive director at payments company Cashflows. Marion, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Paul. Excellent. It's great to have you here. Just to get started, we'd like to quickly let us know a bit more about yourself and what you're up to at the moment. Of course. I started my career over 40 years ago, and I've always worked in financial services. I think it's fair to say the first half of my career was largely at Reuters. I was there about 15 years, worked internationally based in Hong Kong and also in the US, and latterly ran their global foreign exchange dealing business. In 2002, oh, I did a startup in the first dot-com era in the turn of the millennium. And then in 2002, I started my career in the payments industry and I joined what was then Bax, which is this direct debit network as CEO. I spent nine years transforming the company to Voca and then to Voca Link. And during the tenure, I launched with my team Faster Payments, which is the real-time interbank network in the UK. That was in 2008. I then left and joined MasterCard. I was president of MasterCard for three years, really understanding and getting to know uh, the cards market and, of course, the acquiring market. And then in 2015, I joined the RBS Group as director of payments, now MapWest Group, and was there seven and a half years. And then last summer, made the big decision to step down from full-time executive work and, as they say, go plural. And really enjoying that and sit on the board of cash flows, as you've highlighted. And in February, started as the trustee and chair of open banking for the UK. Thanks for that, Marion. On that note, we will be taking a look during the podcast at the current state of play and the next steps for the UK's open banking scene following the recent release of the JROC's recommendations for the future of open banking in the country, as well as diving into some of the trends and developments in the digital payment space. All that's to come a bit later, but as always, to get us started is our News in Numbers segment. This is where our guest has gone out and found a news story featuring an interesting number to discuss. So Marion, what have you brought along for us today? I brought along numbers that were quoted in a recent EY report on the gender pay gap. And I think as a woman, you know, who's been working in the financial services industry for over 40 years, it's really disappointing to see that we're still having these headlines and that with the attention on diversity and inclusion, one would expect to see these headlines going away and then not. And the figure that sort of stood out for me was that across the UK more broadly, we're seeing a 14.9% gender pay gap particularly in the senior roles, but in fintech, it's 22%. So it would appear that the fintech area is not doing very well. And lots of comments around lack of transparency, lack of career path, and lack of recognition of female leadership. So really disappointing to see that. Yeah, no, I agree. And as you've mentioned, this is from a report from EY and industry body Innovate Finance comprised of interviews with 120 nominees of the Innovate Finance Women in Fintech Power List. And unfortunately, they found again that barriers to success still exist within the sector. The research looked at solutions to these challenges. As you've mentioned, regulation of the gender pay gap service is the top way with 17% of respondents identifying that as their first choice. Do you think that's going to be the next step? Or what would you say the next steps to, to tackling this? You know, intervention when things aren't working is usually needed and I'm supportive of regulation in in the financial services industry for 
all sorts of reasons, but it would seem to me that we could do more is in the industry without troubling exceedingly busy regulators. And, and one thing that stands out for me is role model and recognition from the top. And again, just looking at the statistics, while nearly 40% of financial services businesses have women on the board, only 11% of fintechs do, which is a really big difference. And I think it's incumbent on fintechs and the investors in fintechs to make sure there are women on the board. Their customers will be 50% women, 50% men, and you need that diversity to really support the business, represent your customers effectively, and get that diversity of thought, which is all important. And there's lots of you know intellectual pieces that show that a diverse board leads to better results. And now entering onto the board arena myself, I can really see the benefits of having a diverse board, even if it's a small board, you must have full representation. So we need to do more as an industry. I completely agree. And you've mentioned that fintech is struggling here compared to the tech industry in general. What is it do you think that fintech in particular might be doing wrong here? You know, it's difficult to say really, isn't it? Because numbers represent so many different organisations. I mean, what's exciting about the fintech industry in UK is the rapid growth and the innovation that we're seeing, I think, is second to none. Having just come out of UK Fintech Week and seeing the innovation, it's really exciting. But we need to focus on what's happening to the people as well. So my appeal to fintechs is please ensure you have females represented at senior levels and at board level. And I have to say that I also sit as a trustee on a couple of charities and recently just went through an interview process, and the recruitment company came up with a shortlist of 100% men. And for me, again, that's just not acceptable. Recruitment companies just need to work harder and try harder. We need 50% on the shortlist, and we need diversity across the full range of differences in people from ethnicity, not just gender, but also background, social background, etc. So Again, my appeal is not to accept shortlists that do not represent society. And if we stand firm, then I think we'll start to see improvement quite quickly. Yeah, well, I mean, as you mentioned there, engaging recruiters to prioritise diversity was one of the recommendations as well that came with the report, as well as creating a more transparent culture around pay as well, expanding upskilling opportunities. So, yeah, I hope that, you know, people... You take this report on board, take your, your rallying cry on yeah. board as well, and we can start start really trying to improve this situation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, whilst companies of a certain size now have to report the gender pay gap, maybe that size needs to reduce. Maybe organisations with less than 250 people should also start reporting. And I think it would be a shame if we had to get regulation to enforce that. Surely these actions are not that difficult, but we can take them as an industry. And make exemplars of the best and recognise those organisations that do a great job in this area. It's been a difficult start to the year for the banking industry in general with the high-profile collapse of SVB and also the Credit Suisse fiasco sending shockwaves through the sector. 
So to start, I'd be interested to get your take on recent events in the industry. Are these isolated incidents and there's no need to worry, or are these cases indicative of wider issues in the industry that that need addressing? I think what this shows is that banking and financial services is not immune to failure. I remember when I joined the payments industry way back at the beginning of the millennium, and one of the tasks I had was to put a legal framework around the back system. And one of the comments that was played back to me was, well, look, you know, we need to do this, but it's not too urgent because banks never fail. And I remember that really well because that would have been in 2003. And then look what happened in 2008. And so we saw a sort of global collapse happen. And since 2001, 550 banks have shut down, different brands have shut down. So SVB was high profile, obviously Credit Suisse. But this is something that does happen, and we need to recognize that it happens. There's not an immunity, as was perceived perhaps at the beginning of the millennium. And banks have to move with the times. They need to invest. They have the burden of some areas of regulation and technical debt. So this is a tough industry, but we need to be really focused, and we need to have strong risk control We need to have strong board directors and we need to have governance frameworks that watch over the banking and financial services industry. So I don't think it's isolated instances. I think there's evidence to show that banks are the same as other industries where signs like rapid growth can mean disaster, really, after the event. And we saw that with RBS Group. We've seen it with SVB, the triple in size over the pandemic and rapid growth cannot be sustainable. And I think the banking service as well is also very vulnerable to rumor, speculation, and we now have social media. So when customers get nervous, it can cause a disproportionate reaction. So we have to be careful in the modern age. Excellent, yeah. I mean, looking at the UK specifically, then what's your take on the current health of the financial services industry as a whole? Yeah, I think it's, Good. I think there's all this fear of deposit flight and other things happening, but I think we're fairly stable. I think that the real opportunity is in innovation. I think really harnessing the investment that we have in our fintech community, sustaining a strong level of investment is also important. But to do that, we really need to deliver solutions that fix problems that help consumers, that help businesses, that can support financial inclusion, digital inclusion, and really make a difference to society. And that's one of the reasons, Paul, that I'm so fascinated by the payments industry, because it touches everything. Everything we do, every transaction, be it a global organization, be it a household, be it an individual, we all make payments every day. And they're the oil in the engine of the economy. And so the more we can do to innovate, take the pain points out, take the costs out, and enable trading to happen as seamlessly as possible and as safely as possible, I think can have a really positive effect. So I'm very excited about our financial services market. I'm immersed in payments, but that does touch the broader financial services as well. And I think as long as we maintain strong governance, strong regulation, progressive regulation, then I think we will continue to do well. I'm optimistic. 
Excellent. That's good to hear. <laughs> so you mentioned in your, your intro then, obviously, earlier this year, you took over as, as chair and trustee of the, the OBIE. Yes. Um, looking at open banking then, I mean, there's been good news recently with the number of users in the UK swelling up to 7 million now. Open banking payments are on the rise. The value of the sector has now reportedly reached about 4 billion, um, thanks to new investment and players entering the space. But having said that, on the flip side, there's been you know a bit of frustration growing around regulation, a lack of clarity, and we're potentially reaching a point now where without more support, its growth could be potentially inhibited. In response to the JROC, has recently released its recommendations for the future of open banking. So what's your take on those recommendations and the state of open banking in the UK and how can it forge a path forward? Yeah, I think we need to bring some clarity to where we are and what the JROC report or roadmap now enables us to do. Open banking was really first became a regulatory requirement under Payment Service Directive, PSD2, but it didn't enforce a standard. It just requested API connectivity to share customer data with their permission. And the UK then, just over five years ago, looked at this, did a review of the market and found that if we didn't regulate, then this wouldn't happen naturally. This wasn't something that was just going to happen because it requires a strong level of investment and incentives for the different sectors across our markets are different. And so the Competition and Markets Authority raised the CMA order, which required nine of the largest banks in the UK to implement open banking, API connectivity to a standard, to a level in a given timeframe. And at the end of last year, the roadmap was very largely completed, which was great, which meant that we had what I would frame as a strong foundation for open banking in the UK. But it's a foundation. It's nine organizations. We're now at seven and a half million regular users, but that's not enough. And the reason it's not enough is because the ecosystem needs to develop. It needs to improve, not just in terms of quality, but also reach products that can be promoted and introduced into the market, utilizing smart data and that open banking trust framework. So the recommendations in the JROC report, I think is really positive. It lays out a series of actions across five themes. And really that talks to the challenges that we have. But in saying that, what we need to remember and recognize is that UK is ahead of the game here, really because of the Competition Markets Authority and the nine banks really working hard, investing to create the ecosystem that we have today, which has enabled those users, and it's growing every month. The five themes, the first one is is termed leveling up, and this is all about access and performance. You can't have a payments ecosystem that's patchy, that's not ubiquitous, that there's a lack of confidence whether it will work or whether there's certainty of payment. So we have to go beyond where we are today and level up. And that will require work from all the key stakeholders across the industry. And open banking will be obviously heavily engaged in that. The second area is consumer protection. What we don't have at the moment is mechanisms to protect consumers when something goes wrong, when a product goes wrong or a refund is needed. Cards have a very well-established and secure approach to consumer protection, that's not mirrored 
in the real-time payments arena. And that's because when we launched real-time payments in 2008, it was never envisaged that it would be a point-of-sale payment mechanism. It was an interbank mechanism. So we need to work on that. The third area is to mitigate the risks of financial crime. We still see far too much fraud and we need to utilize the data frameworks to exchange data to ensure that we can minimize and mitigate the risks of fraud. And then the fourth area is improving the information flow. All participants in the value chain of a payment need to be informed. They need to know that the payments happen. They need to know if there's an issue. And that flow of MI management information is not where it needs to be for consumers, for third-party providers, and for PSPs. So that needs to be improved. And finally, and probably the most exciting element, is to promote the usage, all the different use cases and possibilities of open banking. And we're going to start with a pilot across the industry of what we call variable recurring payments. This utilizes the ecosystem to make regular payments. But unlike the direct debit, it puts the control in the hands of the consumer. So they can make regular payments, but they're in control of how much and when, and they can set parameters and limits. So it's a much more consumer-focused approach to making regular payments. And that's what open banking is all about. It's about putting the control in the hands of the consumer so that they can see what's happening to their finances and they can make the changes supported by third parties that can provide innovative products to help them do that. Excellent. And prior to the uh, the JROC's recommendations coming out, the strategic working group found that there were different banks had different visions for open banking going forward. Do you think these recommendations have cleared things up for them now and have really got us on a clear path going forward or, or is there still a, a bit of a lack of cohesion? I think it's an element of both, Paul. For central infrastructure, so this is why I was really excited to take on this role. For me, it's like finishing off what we started in 2008 in terms of interbank payment rails to provide real alternative to cards, to provide better data, better information, to fuel innovation and competition in the financial services market. And in turn, then, that attracts investment, increases employment and offers more choice to consumers. So I think the this JROC report says to banks, look, we all need to work together. We need to work to the same standards, to the same quality, with the same access, with the same performance levels. And the open banking implementation entity monitors that. And that's part of delivering against that competition and markets order. And so they recognize that and they recognize there's more to be done and are supportive of that. When it comes to what propositions they put into the market, that's competitive space. And so I'm really excited that banks will be able to compete with what they do with the open banking opportunities and use cases that are there. And we're seeing that divergence. And I think that's really strong because we need more competition in this market, hence the order. And this getting what I'd call the foundation to a place where it needs to be as a central ecosystem that's trusted, which is really important, then beyond that, it's for the innovators, banks, and other financial services organizations to take it where it needs to go. 
Excellent. Sounds good. And yeah, I mean, there's been news going around recently with open banking banks being a bit skeptical about the lack of commercial returns. Do you think there's a way to monetize open banking? I think that there clearly is, but it's like everything, you know, it takes time. Building an ecosystem that's different, that requires many stakeholder groups to collaborate really does take time. And we have to start somewhere. And what we're seeing now is really, I think, inspired by the progress that the UK has made. You know, we're seeing 80 other jurisdictions around the globe now with plans or implementation programs for open banking. And notable ones would be Singapore, Australia, Canada. We're all forging ahead for an open banking ecosystem. And I think a longer term vision is when countries can join up and it becomes really exciting in terms of the art of the possible. And through that, already I've seen a number of business models that do bring revenue to banks. The challenge, though, is will it compromise revenue from cards? Well, it may do, but we have to let competition fight it out, in effect. And we have to have an economic framework around open banking that makes it sustainable. And if it's not sustainable for banks, if it's not sustainable for other payment service providers, it won't work. So one of the key areas alongside those five themes that I spoke about is to transition OBIE into a new entity, a new organizational structure. And part of that will be what is the pricing mechanism? What is the economic framework that makes this ecosystem sustainable? And that means there has to be revenue. It has to have ongoing investment. And that can't be done by a relatively small number of banks funding it for the rest of financial services. We have to move on from that and have an economic model that is sustainable. So I absolutely see revenue models for banks. It will take time and we need to drive that. And open banking will be doing that obviously with full consultation with all the various stakeholder groups. Leading nicely into my next questions, but I was going to ask about the new entity that the JROC has been mentioning now that the OBIE's implementation roadmap is complete. I mean, can you tell us anything else about what's next there, I guess, for the OBIE then and that new entity? It's recommended there will be a new entity, so we are moving to that. And the aim is to have that design done this year so we can start to move towards that entity in Q4 and next year. So I can't tell you what that design will be. Clearly, there are a a number of options. This will be led by the Financial Conduct Authority and and the PSR, quite rightly, and Open Banking will contribute into that. So I don't know what it will look like, but I'm very excited. I think it's important that we keep lean and efficient and at the same time work on all of the actions that have really sort of laid out quite clearly with timeframes in that report. And so we'll be managing open banking as a very systematic program of work, maintaining the good communications and relationships we have with the different stakeholder groups. But beyond the delivery of the order, the now we open out into a much wider market and There will be a governance model that needs to work well. We will be working with JROC, which, as you know, is the coming together of four regulators to make sure that we're delivering against this. And it was 
also really positive to see the Data Protection Digital Information Bill is going through Parliament, which really paves the way for legislation as we need it to ensure that the JROC implementate or plan uh, roadmap can be delivered and get that ubiquity, that levelling up and that quality that we need to enable the innovation to happen with confidence. Excellent. Well, great. I'll move us into to payments then next. Obviously, you mentioned in your introduction all the experience that you have there, and you've recently taken up that, uh, that non-executive director role at Cashflows as well. So what kind of trends then are you seeing in the payment space at the moment that's really getting you excited? So I joined Cashflows because I see it as it was formed in 2010, so it's not a brand new startup. It's well-backed and well-supported by Polo Street Capital, who are its investors, it has a highly experienced and highly credible chairman and Simon Haslam and a great CEO who's a lady, which is brilliant, Hannah Fitzsimmons, who also worked in the payments industry and in the acquiring market. So it came with a set of credentials of individuals who are extremely experienced, well-backed and recognising the need for change, recognising the need for investment in its technology to really focus on that sort of SME market, which is a market, as I said earlier on, that I really believe in because they're so important to our economy and the benefits of modern technology, of capability should be accessible for all businesses, You know, whether you're a one-man band, a one-woman band or a mid-sized organisation. And Cashflows really has that at the heart of its values They believe in combining AI, artificial intelligence, with human beings. So not not just leaving it to technology for merchants to set up their payment capabilities, but have that human interaction as well. So they're always accessible to help smaller businesses cope with e-commerce and how to trade. Um, They'll have a great product, but how do you accept payments? How do you manage payments and how do you deal with that? And cash flows... It has is delivering a suite of innovation. And so, for example, they've looked at fast onboarding, which is really important. If you're a small business or relatively small business, the, the distraction of taking on a new supplier can be really quite onerous. And so cash flows have created an approach which makes that straightforward, simple and speedy, and then delivers a range of services suited to that particular industry sector and customer type. So I'm very supportive of what they're doing. Hopefully my experience can help at board level and add to the skills that they already have and take this company that's now coming at 13 years old and take it forward, but keeping focused on that smaller marketplace, which needs great partners and support. Excellent. And are there any new developments in the payments industry happening at the moment that are really catching your attention? Oh, gosh, yeah, lots. I think it's constantly evolving. And I think we saw how important the payments industry is through the pandemic, where the acceleration from physical payments to digital payments, you know, really speeded up. And the view was that it accelerated as five years in those first 18 months where people were at home. And of course, the benefits of contactless really came to the fore as well, where people didn't want to touch money 
or buttons or plastic. They just wanted contactless and that really accelerated too. So we went from physical to digital and now we're seeing virtual. We've seen cryptocurrencies, we've seen the rise and fall of those, but clearly here to stay. And so when you look at things like the metaverse and this immersive experience beyond gaming, which I don't do by the way, but my sons do, (laughs) clearly payments will be a key role in that. And seeing the virtual payments world evolve, I think is fascinating. It's not here yet. It's not mainstream, but watch this space. It's moving dramatically. And so the continued growth in e-commerce, the continued growth of digital wallets and digital capability is just going to continue. We still see cash decline, paper payments like checks, et cetera, declining. Cash will be with us probably certainly through several lifetimes, but it will be minimized and will be there just for certain reasons. And open banking, again, I think is a game changer. Um, I really do believe it's a game changer. It's just going to open up and it will move beyond finance and it will move beyond payments and it will move into other sectors. And if you look at all the areas where consumers make regular payments, and therefore it's really important to their financial management, energy, telecommunications, insurance, pensions, mortgages, all of these areas I think will benefit from smart data, utilizing smart data to enable consumers and businesses, particularly SMEs, to manage their financial health far more efficiently. I was talking to a group of SMEs a couple of weeks ago, and and one described it, could it be like having my accountant, my financial advisor, my bookkeeper automated in my pocket, ready and in real time every day? And yes, it it could. These tools will enable you to manage these things on a day-to-day basis automatically. And that becomes really quite exciting. And there's lots of use cases across the consumer market as well, particularly areas like financial inclusion, you know, enabling access to lending to those who hitherto have been excluded. So there's lots of real game changers that will happen by utilizing smart data. And actually this week is the first meeting of the smart data uh, group led by the government and the regulators to start driving cohesion and connectivity between those different sectors to start looking at how we not just create smart data, implement AI, but how we actually deliver to consumers and businesses the benefits of this new infrastructure, new ecosystem, and utilizing data in a more effective way. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for speaking with me, uh, Marion. To close out the podcast, we have our now infamous fintech jail. Um, so this is where we ask for an industry term, buzzword or trend that uh, you've seen or heard enough of and you want to do away with. So what buzzword would you like to hand a sentence to that? I think the buzzword that I'd like to see done away with, as you say, is unicorn. You know, this excitement about the valuation of a young company that's not listed. I don't think it's about valuation. It has to be to our early discussion about revenue and profitability to be sustainable. 
you can't continue to grow and borrow and have capital investment until the next round runs out. You have to create a business model that creates true value. And that's financial value as well as true benefit to society. So this whole hype about the billion dollar plus valuation, I think is distracting. It isn't the measure of success that we need. The measure of success that we need, is it sustainable? And does it benefit society? Does it fix problems of today to move our industry and financial management forward in an effective way? Yeah, I I mean, I guess you can argue that the 1 billion mark is quite an arbitrary number in itself anyway, right? But um, do you think this point has really hit home recently with how much there was a point in 2021 where funding was going through the roof and it seems like there was a new unicorn coming around the corner every every week? Do you think now with funding drying up a little bit that the focus is now really, you know, not away from driving the valuation up to that 1 billion mark? I think so. Yeah, I hope so. And the evidence is there. I think it was nearly 600 in 2021 and then just around half that you know in 22 so I think we're starting to see it come back into a more sensible arena with the focus being on sustainability and that's financial sustainability but also you know the impact that it's having on the environment the impact that it's having to the globe and I think that's an area where we're seeing real investment and focus and quite rightly so. Yeah, well, I'm swayed. I'm quite happy to throw unicorns in the jail then. And, uh, you know, who knows? It seems like one of those that's going to stay in the jail for um, a while now. But uh, who knows? Maybe when uh, the fintech funding goes uh, through the roof again, someone will come along and want to want to break unicorn out. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for this episode. Thanks, of course, to Marion for joining me. As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at Fintech Futures and on LinkedIn. If you like this podcast and other episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service to get notified about future episodes. Thanks as well to Arama for editing this podcast. You can check them out at arama.tv. As always, thank you very much for your support, and we'll see you again for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye.